welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hi, my name is VJ. I'm the lead pastor here at The Well. So good to be with you today. Someone once said that when you go through something you've never been before, been through before, or in a season of change, that it can bring up stuff in you you've never seen before in yourself. Now, I'd have to admit over these last many months, there's been some stuff that's come up in me that, oh, I'm kind of pleasantly surprised. Oh, I didn't know I, I like that. I didn't know I felt that way. I didn't know I would react that way. There's also been some stuff that has come up that I've been like, oh, where did that come from? And when that happens, listen, our inclination is to want to blame, oh, that's because of the stress of this situation, or that's because of the change. That's not really me. Um, the truth is, though, as someone said, what comes up out of us was always there. It was just kind of sitting at the bottom in a sense. It had settled something, the situation or whatever, stirred it up and out it came. And, and if I'm honest, if I look at myself, observe my own life and my relationships, as I look on social media, as I talk with many of you, many people, I think there's stuff that's coming up for us right now that maybe is a little bit like, ooh. Like I've seen in me some entitlement, a sense of entitlement, which says, because life is so hard, because this is difficult, I deserve fill in the blank. This I deserve, I ought to have, or we could splurge or whatever because it's so hard. There's a sense of entitlement that, that, I, that I see in me and that I think exists around us. Secondly, I see selfishness in a sense that my perspective has, has shrunk and my worldview really has become about me and my, what is going on with me and the things close to me and my world and my work and my life and my health and, and maybe hopefully a few of the people fit in there who are in my life. But it's really, there's a, there's a selfishness that can come up out of us in this time. And maybe because of those things or in response to that, self-pity, poor me. I can't believe I have to go through this. I can't believe this is happening to me. Now, this is not to diminish you know, um, how many of the uh, difficult things that people are going through right now. Um, but it's just to say that in the middle of that, we can be infected and affected with something that has, has affected far more people than the virus. The virus, they say about 1% of people um, have gotten it. And maybe, maybe more than that because we haven't tested everybody, but we said last week, yeah, but 100% of us have been affected in some way, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And in some of these ways, right, that we're seeing entitlement, selfishness, self-pity. And yet I think really um, the, the, you know, the, the gift that God gives us, even still in this season, what we call a word we often associate with the Christmas season, is the word wonder. Um, this idea of, of a gift, that there are gifts that we are meant to receive and discover that God has for us in this season. And hear me, just because things in this season feel different and maybe less warmth and less tradition and less of the stuff that we would look forward to, that God is still giving us things in this season and our, our job is to actually prepare ourselves to receive them and things that we can still receive in this season. These are gifts. I think the question for us really ultimately through this is the wonder of the Christmas season is meant to shape us and help us become people. Because really more important than um, when will this be over? Uh, when the question of, you know, will the virus, uh, will the vaccine be effective? Or even thirdly, like, will our economy bounce back? Those are all good questions. But maybe the most important question is, who will we be at the end of this? Who, who will we be when this is over? Who will we have become? because we're all being shaped by our responses and, and will be, be able to come out of the selfishness and the entitlement and the self-pity and receive what God has for us. 
And so that's where we are these next few weeks in this Advent season, this season of preparation to receive the gifts of God. And the gift that we want to talk about actually receiving today is the gift of giving. That giving is one of the gifts that God actually gives to us in this season. Now, in my home, one of the things that we do when we watch TV is we'll mute the commercials and I will voice over what I think the commercial people are saying. And you would love it because I'm so funny and my family thinks that too. Of course they do. Um, but, but So you could do this right now and just mute this and you could hear the pastor keep on talking and you could make up a sermon on giving. It's better to give than to receive and you'll feel better about it, whatever. But don't do that, partly because it's mean and partly because, no, I really think actually there's a mystery in this giving thing. There's something, there's a wonder about it, that somehow we could discover that God says, no, giving is a gift for you, those who give, that I want you to discover that that's part of what this season is about. And so the passage we're going to look at today, it's not actually a Christmas passage, but it's one that God put on my heart several weeks ago when I was thinking about this series, that what would it mean for us to understand the gift of giving that God invites us into? So I want you to listen to that now as it's read for you. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, this account that Luke has for us in his gospel and his biography of Jesus, just to set the scene for you, Jesus is teaching and talking to his followers and, and probably his most immediate context, his disciples. And he, they are teaching while they're in the temple courts and they're watching. And they're, it's a scene where people would be giving. Now, this is this was a, a something that would be seen in, in sort of public in a sense that there would be a, a pot as people walked into the temple to pray or whatever that they were required to give to the temple treasury. The temple had, there was all kinds of religious rules around how much you gave. And Jesus is watching to, um, people do this. And he sees uh, this widow who puts in her two coins and the rich people ahead who put in a lot of coins. And Jesus is making some observations. Now, this is really important for us to, to think about because on the surface, we could look at this and say, oh, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how much you give, every little bit counts. And then that would be, and I, I suppose maybe that's true, uh, but that's not really what this passage is about. And that's not what Jesus was talking about. In fact, the, the story isn't primarily just or only about the widow, Luke's gospel is concerned, you'll find this all the way through in his biographical account of Jesus, the contrasts that Jesus would bring out, the groups of people, this versus this, in order to show um, his disciples what was going on, but also to help the listeners and the readers later on to identify themselves within that scene. And so Jesus is talking about something here, and, and I think the question we have to ask is, well, okay, he's talking to his disciples, but who particularly is he talking about? What is his issue in this particular bit of teaching, and why was he pointing this out? Because he actually, he was saying to his disciples, I want you to look at something. There's a certain group of people that act a certain way, and I don't want you to follow them or act like them. And that certain group of people was actually the religious leaders. And if I can say this, the religious leaders in particular who were wealthy because they were religious leaders. That was how it worked back then. 
And the reason we know this is not actually just because of the passage itself that we just read, those few verses, but it's really the verses that come before it and the verses that go after it. And this is actually a good rule of thumb when you're reading scripture is to say, well, I can't just understand, if I'm going to understand the passage, it's not that this, it's just, it's also what comes before it and what comes after. And just before this scene happens, Jesus was talking to the disciples in the hearing of the religious leaders, and he was tearing a strip off of the religious leaders for something in particular and saying to the disciples, this is what they do, and I don't want you to do it. He was actually criticizing them for the way they lived and what they modeled for the people around them. In particular, we read actually, In Luke uh, chapter 20, verse 47, which comes right before this, Jesus is talking about the religious leaders. Look what he says to his disciples. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. He's contrasting their, their two types of behavior. He said, on the one hand, these are people, religious people who apparently know God, who apparently are close to God, who apparently... um, live a life that God would say, yes, this is a good life. And, that, and he says they do all kinds of things to demonstrate to people that that's what they're like. They're holy. They make long prayers. That's a show of their prayers. And yet he says, he uses such strong language. He says at the same time, they devour widows' houses. Now, this is a strange reference, but we know it's connected really to the passage because the word widow shows up twice here. Now, widows were considered to be one of the most vulnerable groups of people in this society. Reason being... A young woman, if she, what her hopes for her life would have been in those days, and that her family really would want for her, is that she would find a good husband, someone who would treat her well, someone who was wealthy, someone who was noble, someone who was honorable, and then she would then have a life of caring for the home, um, doing work in the home and the farm, the family business, and raising children, hopefully bearing children and raising children. That was what she could hope for. It was good, and that was how she was going to have a good life, which meant If you were a widow and you lost your husband, you lost your spouse, you were destitute, and there would probably be a a psychological or a superstitious stigma around you that maybe the husband died because you were bad or cursed, and so another man might not want to marry you, and you would have to go back to your family if they were, but if you were older, you were basically on your own. And that's why God, all the way through the scriptures of the people saying, you have to care for the widows. They had no way to care for themselves. And Jesus is saying these religious leaders, they make a big show of how they know God and are close to God, but they are devouring widows' houses. Well, what does this mean? We don't know exactly what Jesus was referring to, but probably it speaks to the fact that some of the religious leaders would have been involved in the legal proceedings um, of, the, of that day. They were, their, their legal system, their religious system were very tied together. And so they would have been in charge of like saying, uh, processing the estates or whatever of a, of a, some, of a widow who had, uh, whose husband had passed away. And this idea that um, they might have been taking fees that they weren't allowed to take from a widow was one thing he may have been implying. But maybe more likely, if a, if a husband had debt that he owed and he died, that the debt, debt collectors would come and say, well, you have to give your properties collateral um, for this debt that you have to pay. And yet a widow at that point, if, if her uh, husband had died, had no way of paying. And so the houses were being repossessed and taken away. So the very last things they had would be taken away. So that's probably what Jesus was meaning when they were saying, you're devouring. He says, you religious leaders, they are taking away the last things that the most vulnerable people in society have. And Jesus says, this is the problem. And then it says, as he was teaching them this, he looked up and they saw something. He saw, says what he saw. He saw the religious or wealthy people, but we can make the association with probably religious leaders, 
putting their coins into the temple treasury. Now, they didn't have paper then, so this would have been some kind of a vessel or whatever, and people would come publicly and drop their coins in. And so you imagine the sound of people putting lots of money in it, all the clanging and clattering of coins, and probably people would have looked up and people would say, oh, that's a, that's a righteous person. Look, they're giving so much. Remember, Jesus talked about the show. And then, after the clattering of coins, Luke says, a widow came, and we heard... Two small coins. This loud clattering of lots of wealth going in and then two small coins. You know, Jesus says, in a way, that is the sound of injustice. That is the sound of injustice. This wasn't Jesus commending that widow for giving all she gave. He said, this is, a, this is an injustice. These religious leaders who are wealthy are devouring the houses of widows so that all they have left is two coins. And, and the coins, just for value's sake, would have been, um, you know, one-sixtieth of a day's wage. So in our thing, maybe like $2 or something like that. But it was all she had. There was no house. There was nothing left to give. He was contrasting, not in that moment, the generosity of the widow, although what she did was incredible, but basically she was paying into the system all she had left that these other people were profiting from. And he said, for them, it meant nothing to them. They have lots of wealth. They didn't even feel it. It was a show for her. It was all she had left. Jesus is upset at the injustice. And it's like he says, and, and, and he goes on to actually say, we know this, he's upset with them because in the previous passage, he says, these men who devour widows' houses, they will be punished most severely. They'll be punished most severely. And later, the passage that comes right after, he actually says, you know what? The temple, that's actually going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be thrown down. And he's basically saying both the religious leaders and this religious system has failed. It's going to be destroyed. It failed to do what it was supposed to do. God was upset with what Jesus was noting. Jesus was upset with what he was seeing in the temple. Why? It's almost like God would have been more pleased if these people had all this money to give in the show would actually turn around and see the widow who had nothing, who they had devoured her wealth from her and actually help her. Instead, they're making a show. And Jesus says, because of this, these men will be punished most severely. And this whole system, this temple, it's got to go. This thing that was supposed to actually represent God was using up the most weak and the most vulnerable in it. And Jesus points it out and says, this is not good. Now, we in the 21st century who are anti-religious and anti-authoritarian and anti-establishment and, uh, you know, anti-everything would be like, yeah, Jesus, like, stick it to them. He's sticking it to them. Except the problem is we are the wealthy religious people. We are the wealthy religious people. Now, I know that Many of us would say, oh, I would never use the word wealthy to describe me or my life. And, you know, because when we think wealthy, we think, I don't know, Mr. Beast, like my, friend, my kids watch on, online. And people who have tons or the houses I go drive by when I'm looking for a Sunday drive. Like, those are the wealthy people. I'm not wealthy. But, but can I just say, I mean, if occasionally, even just occasionally, you pay someone to cook food for you and even bring it to your house, you might be wealthy. Um, if you have a cell phone and, and in fact you have another cell phone that you used to have that still works but you got a new one because uh, you upgraded, uh, you might be wealthy. Or even if you have one, you might be wealthy if you have more than one pair of shoes or one coat. You might be wealthy if you 
own a car or you have a house that has heat in the winter and is cooled down in the summer. Judging by most standards of the world in terms of how people live, almost all of us would tick the box to some of those questions and say, wait, we might actually be wealthy. Now, I want you to think about a few numbers. I'm going to put a few numbers up on the screen there for you. And there's just three numbers there. And so you can see what those numbers are. I think 1,700, 790, 454. Those are the numbers. I want you to just guess for a moment. These are um, what Canadians spend on average in a year. Now, I want you, if you're, if you're uh, watching this on your own, you can text somebody what you think or you're with people in the room. Guess what those numbers represent. I want you to just take a moment and do that. See if you can guess. That's average, the average Canadian spends in a year. What, is the, what do those numbers represent? I'll give you just a couple minutes. Okay, you ready? The average Canadian spends about $1,700 on Christmas. It's gifts and food and alcohol and that kind of stuff. $1,700. The average Canadian spends $790 a year on coffee. Now hear me, that's not going out coffee. That's roughly if you brew your own coffee at home. If you're a regular at Tim Hortons or, or uh, McDonald's or Starbucks, or, or if you have an espresso machine or whatever, like those numbers are higher than that. And what's that last number? The last number, 454, that's how much the average Canadian gives in a year. Just look at the proportions of those numbers which is to say basically after they have given, most Canadians still have 99.5% of their income left over. 99.5% of their income left over. To use the language of this story that we're talking about, what was left over, 99.5%. And what about time? Here's two numbers for you that you can think about. And these are hours, okay? Hours per year, 130 hours a year, and 1,590 hours a year. What do you think those numbers are? How many hours Canadians spend on what each year? And I'm talking about waking hours. We didn't include um, sleep. Okay, that number of 1,590, that's how many hours on average a Canadian spends watching TV and doing social media on their phone. You might be higher than that. These are average numbers, okay? The other number, the 130 which is less than 10% of that, is how many hours a year Canadians spend serving or volunteering. And if we want to talk about how many hours are left over, the average Canadian has 98% of their hours left over. That number is even higher than 98% if you sleep less than eight hours a day. 98%. Now, here's the good news. If you are an average Canadian, you're off the hook. Jesus isn't talking to you. <laughs> the reason I say that is because, I, from what I know, the statistics, the average Canadian is not a follower of Jesus. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're off the hook. But I am, and many of you are. And so Jesus is talking to us. This message is for us. The same warning he was giving to his disciples and say, see that, watch this, I don't want you to become like that, is the same thing he is saying to us. See, the reason the religious establishment failed is because they failed. And he says to them, I'm gonna, these leaders are going to be judged most severely, punished. And in fact, the whole religious system has to come down. Why? 
because they failed to show the heart of God to the people in need right in front of them. Like just that picture of them walking into the temple with all of their wealth and not for a moment turning around and seeing somebody there empty-handed who needed to know the love of God. God actually, Jesus pronounced judgment on it and says, this thing has failed to show the love of God. And that's what this is really about. The question about money and giving or whatever is, is ultimately about, do we have a heart like God's? Because here's the wonder of the Christmas season that you and I are meant to capture. The wonder of the season is that God acted like that poor widow and actually gave all of himself away. That's the wonder and the mystery of the Christmas season that God was like the widow who gave everything and held nothing back. See, the key sign and that the, that the whole system had failed, was he said the people gave out of their wealth. They had extra. They didn't even feel it. This widow gave everything she had. The proportional difference was a shame to them. He says the reason it's a shame you're, you're failing to represent God is because God did not give us a percentage of his love. The scriptures say that God actually gave his son, that he gave what was most precious to us. The scriptures say that Jesus, when he came to earth, lived not only as a human, but gave himself fully to the people, gave himself as living in a poor family, and ultimately even gave his very life away for those he loved. Theologians describe this, that Jesus shows us the self-emptying God, the God who actually gives all he has. This is the wonder of the Christmas season, that God is like that widow, the self-emptying one who gives everything he has away. And friends, this is the mystery of giving that you and I are invited into to share, that God actually means to rescue us out of these risks of selfishness and self-pity and entitlement to say, no, I want you to begin to know my heart. The first and foremost, this isn't about guilt. First and foremost, this is actually saying, this is who God is to you, that he has emptied himself for you. And we are invited in a sense to live in the same way. It is a wonder that God would even act like this. That is what we realize at Christmas again. And no global pandemic can take that away from us. See, friends, this is a blessing. This is actually something good that God invites us into. Uh, what came to mind this week is I was reading um, someone writing about different biographies of people and writing about Dr. Robert Coles, who um, studied literature and then became a physician, a, a doctor of psychiatry, and then became a child sci uh, psychiatrist, studied and wrote on the lives of children, especially who were poor or who had gone through many difficult things. Eventually, he became um, one of Harvard's most sought-after professors of literature, and he wrote several books um, coming out of his study and experiences and writing with uh, children who were poor, children who had suffered, and then he wrote one final in a five-volume work. The last one was about children who had come from wealth, and he said he he found something very interesting that though the lives of, of children who were poor were difficult and hard and he felt his own heart begin to melt and want to help them and knew society needed to help them. He said, I found in them, even through their trials, a courage and a kindness and a love and a dependence on God. In fact, it was what he saw in some of these families whose, whose lives um, were enriched by their own faith was what actually led him to faith even as he studied them. 
But then he said, when I looked at the lives of people who had come from wealth, he said, you know what words ended up describing them most? They had experiences of boredom and alienation. As he looked at the extremes of society, he saw even though he said he wanted to do something about these hard situations that people were in and wanted to alleviate them and felt that we as a society had a responsibility to. He said, still within them, I saw courage and love and dependence on God. And yet with those who had everything they need, he said, I saw boredom and alienation. And Philip Yancey, when he writes about uh, Robert Cole's conclusion, says this. He says, the most dangerous temptation of all is the temptation of plenty. In the same breath, wealth curses what it blesses. Being privileged tends to stifle compassion, curtail community, and feed ambition. Friends, I believe Jesus is inviting us out away from that temptation to see both our money and our time as riches that we are meant to empty ourselves of, to enrich the lives of others. Just as the scriptures say, Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that we might be rich by what he gave to us, right? Which wasn't about money, it was himself, it was his life. So we are invited to empty ourselves, to take what we have in terms of money, in terms of time. And some of us may relate more to sort of having a lot of extra when it comes to wealth. Others may more about time, but either way we are invited to say, invited out of the temptation that might lead to eventually to boredom and alienation to say, no, come actually learn the gift of giving your life away. And it is one of the mysteries that Jesus invites us into in this season. And you know, for us as a church, one of the, there's many ways that we've tried to practice this as a church community. We give about 15% of what comes into our church to the work uh, um, of church planting, of our international partners around the world, um, of people who are connected to our own church who we were supporting in ministry. And then over and above that, um, you have given like we've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars that have gone to our international partners to help work people who are working with some of the poorest and some of the most disenfranchised people. You've also given to local places, the human trafficking, um, uh, the fight against human trafficking, the war that we are waging on that with members of police and other um, uh, social groups that we are raising money for men ending trafficking or putting gift bags together. Some of you in Bolton partnering with the exchange that's there. Um, over the years, we've done many things, and that's a part of things we do collectively as a church and things that we encourage you into. Operation Christmas Child this year, and then many of you gave to Honduras when the need came up over the space of just a couple of days. We were able to send a ton of stuff, and so there is this heart within us, within our community to say, yes, this is the heart of God, and I hope that as you participated in that, you have actually felt the joy, the gift that giving has been to you. And so I just want to give you some practical ways to say, how do we continue knowing that this is a temptation in particular for those of us who are wealthy and that we actually have to acknowledge, yeah, we are in a sense wealthy. What are some things that we can do to actually um, follow Jesus and, and keep us far away from the things that he warns us to stay away from the hearts that could be like that? One of them would say, I would say, just make a list of what you spend maybe on Christmas or for the year what you spend in terms of dollars or hours on yourself and what you give in terms of dollars or hours. See, the whole key in this story was the widow, that Jesus was saying she gave everything she had. Proportionally, she gave way more than all the clattering of coins for, for those people that it didn't even touch them. They didn't even feel it. They could live without it. 
was just for show or maybe to make themselves feel less guilty or whatever it was. We actually need to look at and say, proportionally, what's going on in my own life? If I'm looking at what I spend in hours and dollars on myself or my family and hours and dollars on others, is anything out of balance? Someone said to me years ago something that was so helpful for me and for my family. If you're spending in the thousands and giving in the hundreds, something is out of balance. And so you may want to look at that from a money standpoint. You may look at, want to look at that from a time standpoint. I would say if you have kids, it's never too soon to teach them to think this way about the money they have. That the money they have is, is not their own. And there should be a portion of that that they're giving, a portion of that that they're saving, and a portion of that that they spend on themselves. And it isn't just, oh, you got to pay off God. You know, with our kids, we've actually said because they don't have a lot of expenses themselves that that percentage of giving should be pretty high. And you know what it's done for them? It's actually given, if they have saved money to be able to give, then when opportunities have come up, whether it's Operation Christmas Child or Honduras or whatever, they're like, I want to give. I have money for that. It's actually created a level of excitement and allowed them to participate in the joy of giving. This can never happen too soon, whether that's with the dollars or the hours and the way that they spend their time in the houses that you live. And then thirdly, one of the ideas that's been so fun for us that Jen introduced to our family a couple years ago is the white envelope. Every year in the Christmas tree now, there's a white envelope and we know what's in it, but we still like opening it anyways. And it's a reminder, it's a list. It could be a picture or something like that that reminds us of the stuff that we gave to this Christmas season. And one of the cool things is I noticed this Christmas season, that envelope's gonna be bigger than ever because opportunities kept coming up. First, it was Operation Christmas Child. Then it was Honduras. Then I got a note from Alpha. We're running the Alpha course online in our church in the new year and many other churches now. And we're raising money for that. And then... Um, most recently uh, with the bags that we're packing for human trafficking survivors because we can't do a, a Christmas party uh, in person this year. And so you know what? Instead of donor burnout, which sometimes, I'll be honest, I feel this time of year it's another ask. I'm like, yes, there's another opportunity. There's another opportunity. Something's happened in my heart that I'm so excited about. And I've told you about the fact that it hasn't always been where I've been. And so I'm so excited to open that envelope and rehearse again for our family what we were able to give to. And let's be honest, we talk about donor burnout, but we don't often get burnt out when we get another note from Amazon saying, hey, that thing you were looking at is on sale and you don't go, oh, stop, stop bothering me. It's like, oh yeah, another one. Jesus wants to have ask us to have that kind of heart when it comes to giving that we would take delight and joy in that. And so there may be just one of these things you say, yeah, this is right. This is the right thing for my family right now. It may lean more towards money. It may lean more towards time. Whatever it is, I want you to experience the wonder, the gift, the mystery that somehow when we were able to do these things, we are freed from the temptation of wanting more and needing more, of selfishness or entitlement or self-pity. Remember we said this, the most important question when we're going through a season like this is, who are we becoming? Who are we going to be when this is over? This is the gift that God is actually shaping us to become more like him, to have a heart like his. So I want to just pray for you and give you a blessing. And then the band's going to lead us in a song of closing. Jesus, I thank you that this is your heart. I thank you that you held nothing back from us. I thank you that the love and forgiveness and grace and purpose and new life that we get in you has been freely given to us. We don't have to pay for it. You demand nothing from us. You have given your life for us. And so, Lord, help us in return to have a heart like yours. Deep down, that is the kind of people we want to be. I know it. It's the kind of person I want to be. I want to be less selfish, less entitled, less self-pitying. I want to be more compassionate. I want to be more generous. I want to be more joyful. I want to be more grateful. 
And so Lord, give us your heart and help us even as we take these very practical steps, do something miraculous, something wonderful, something mysterious in our hearts, even this season. In your name we pray, amen. Well, as you go and consider one or two of these steps, I want to bless you with kind of like a, um, you know, the joy that you get when you're on the hunt for something great. When you're about to buy something great or eat something great, there's this excitement in you because you can't wait to do it. I want to bless you with that kind of joy to go and find and see those who might be right in front of you, just like that widow was right in front of those people, that God has given you an opportunity to love and serve and bless and empty yourself for that person. As we close our service, I want you to join the band or if you know the song or you can just listen along. It is a song called Grace to Grace. It is about the incredible self-emptying love of God. And so maybe this is just an opportunity for you to worship him for it, to praise him for it, to delight in it, or just say, God, give me a heart like yours.